Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you speak to us in Scripture. Um, Thank you so much that you reveal yourself, that we can know you. We pray that as we look at the doctrine of salvation, how it is you save us, uh, the, the order by which you save us, we pray that we would be encouraged, we pray that we would be built up in our faith, and that you would receive the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So the handouts are somewhere in the front. Yes. Um, So we're going to begin a six-part series on soteriology. And I want to begin uh, by introducing the topic by looking at how, if you look at Scripture, um, it talks about our salvation in three tenses. Um, And I think that's a, a... different than the way we typically think about it. We typically think about um, salvation only in the past tense, right? So we, we, we say, you know, when were you saved? Or I was saved, you know, in such and such an event. Um, it's the typical way we think about it. We think of it only as something that happened in our past. But if you look at the language of Scripture, there, there's a much richer, deeper understanding. Um, so let me just give you three passages. Ephesians 2 Um, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then he says, by grace you have been saved. So this language we're very comfortable with, we're very familiar with. Salvation has already happened to us. We are saved, right, in the past from our sins. But the Bible also talks about salvation as still ongoing and happening to us even now. So, for example, Philippians 2, very famous passage. Um, Although some people get nervous when they read this passage, and let me address some of the nervous issues. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, he says, uh, listen to the language, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Um, Now, people get uncomfortable. They don't like this verse uh, because, number one, it feels sort of threatening and ominous because it feels like our salvation is therefore indeterminate or still being unset. It's still unsettled. We're not sure if we're saved or not. Um, is perhaps the, uh, the idea or the, the, the feeling that you get from this verse because it says work it out. And also, um, people don't like the word work associated with salvation. Like, aren't we saved by grace, not by works? Um, so we dislike this idea of working. But let me emphasize that it is still, of course, by grace because notice it says that it is God who works in us. Right? So it is grace. This is not negating um, the gospel of grace. Welcome. Join us. Um, but the other thing is that we shouldn't feel insecure as if salvation is, is indeterminate. When Paul writes, work out your own salvation, what is he saying? He's saying simply this, that salvation is still happening to us right now in our lives. It's this continual process of being progressively rescued from our sins. Um, so we're not just, so that we can say, yes, accurately, we were saved, we have been saved, Right, and we can we can honestly say, I'm being saved right now. Right, um, I'm being saved uh, as we speak, because salvation because salvation is an ongoing process. It's not like he rescued from us from our sin and that's done. 
He's continuing to rescue us from our sins. He's continuing to deliver us from death and evil and and darkness. Um, so salvation is past, salvation is present, salvation is also future. Romans 5, Paul writes, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more, listen, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So the syntax there is a little bit uh, complicated, but notice that shall we be saved, the Bible talks about salvation as awaiting us still in the future. Um, so there's still a glorious salvation to come. So we can honestly say, using scriptural language, that our salvation awaits us. We can say, I will be saved. There's a sense in which we have been saved, we are being saved, but both of those are still incomplete, still not fully realized salvations. We will be saved fully, gloriously, completely. So salvation is not, a, is not just a single event, but it's a series of events. Right? We have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. Um, so that's my introduction. I think this is enormously helpful as we think about our salvation when we think about it like that because the way I, think, the way I look at it is this, right? We, we tend to think about our salvation as sort of um, just this mass, <laughs> um, which is okay. Um, we're saved, right? Our sal- God has saved us through Christ. But what I want to do through this six-part series is I want to tease out all the component parts. Oh, there's a hand. And um, it's sort of like light, right? Um, we normally see light uh, as light, but it's possible to, uh, to separate out the component parts, and you can see the spectrum, the rainbow. Um, and when you do that, you see the, the beauty and the glory of light, and that's what I want to do with our salvation. We're going to break it apart into six pieces, not artificially, but these are the six pieces that Scripture itself identifies. And... It helps us to appreciate how God saves us, the order in which God saves us. It helps us to, to think through issues like, where are we passive in our salvation? Where, are, where is God saving us? And then where do we participate in our salvation? Where do we cooperate in our salvation? That's what scripture says. Um, who gets the glory? Who gets the credit for our salvation, right? Um, we'll talk about that. Um, there are implications for predestination. If you understand, if you if you tease out the component parts of salvation, um, the logical conclusion will be: Are we predestined? Right? Who is ultimately responsible for our salvation? And so, I hope that this will be encouraging to you. It will be uh, faith building to you. So, what we're going to do is we're going to look at it through something called the ordo salutis, which is sort of what theologians have coined. It's a Latin phrase meaning order of salvation. And here it is: the order of salvation is. Uh, so I, I, I put it here as a time, time timeline, which I, th- I hope will help you. Um, you could think of your conversion as four component parts. They all happen together, but they're logically sequential, <laughs> if that makes sense, right? So it's not like um, you, you experience effectual calling, and then five days later you experience regeneration, and then two weeks later you experience faith, and then a month later justification. They all happen together, but logically, one precedes the other, right? So logically, effectual calling comes first, which is that God calls us to salvation. Then there's regeneration, which means that God awakens our heart. Effectual calling and regeneration are two sides of the same coin. Effectual calling is something that's external that God is doing to us. Uh, Regeneration is God, is what's happening inside of our hearts. Uh, Then we respond by faith, right? We trust in Christ. 
then God justifies us. He declares us righteous in Christ. And then sanctification is a lifetime, lifelong process of gradual growth and holiness. And then finally, we're awaiting our glorification, which is our resurrection life. And then let's begin. So we're going to begin with a factual call. Any questions there so far? All right. Yes, I think. But some argue that, because I know it's short trip on this, the factual calling on generation can happen before the faith, especially the... Yeah, so the logical order, it's happening before. They precede. You're saying it's simultaneous too. Right. It's simultaneous meaning the, it all. there's no time gap. Does that make sense? No. Okay. <laughs> there, there's a logical sequence, but not necessarily a large time sequence. That's where I think it would be argued. Because I know like Bunyan, thinks he was awakened for years before he was saved. Um, yes. I, I suppose so. I suppose you can think of regeneration, um, of course, happening over a long, long period. So it's not just like this moment where you're regenerated. You're, you're, you could be regenerated over a long time period. And then at the end of that time period, you finally respond to faith, right? But we may not know. Faith is when we know. Yes. Well, we're digging into the weeds now, so we'll, 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 get, to it, we'll get to it then. All right, so number one, the, the call of God. Um, let's look at First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Let me read it for you. Uh, but you are a chosen race. So so let me set this up. Peter is talking about our salvation, right? So he's throwing out all kinds of descriptions of what it means to be uh, saved in Christ, to be the church, right? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for, your, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, listen, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here it is. We're called out of darkness into light. God's calling is a way to speak about our salvation, right? So how does our salvation happen? Our salvation happens by God calling us. God saying, you know, come to me, right? Um, by God, by God saying, "Turn away from your sins, right? Repent, um, come back to me." So there's a call aspect to our salvation, right? But when you think about it like that, now let's do a little bit of logical reasoning, right? Um, if you think about salvation as a call that God calls us, there has to necessarily be two calls, two two distinct calls or two categories of calls because can't we say that everyone is called? Right? Um, like, uh, uh, doesn't everyone, I mean, what is the call? The call is the gospel presentation, right? The call is, is you're a sinner, um, Jesus Christ is the Savior. If that's the call, doesn't everybody hear the call, but then not everybody is saved, or not everyone comes to faith, not everyone becomes a Christian, right? And so, therefore, right there, you can discern there must be, the, by necessity, two calls. So there is a general call, and then there's a there's what theologians call an effectual call. All right. So let's let's look at these each in turn. There is a general call, and the general call is for all people. Look with me to uh, Mark 16. Let me read it for you. 
And Jesus said to his disciples, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So this is sort of the mini Great Commission at the end of Mark, right? And Jesus tells his disciples, Go and proclaim, meaning go and issue the call to all people indiscriminately. Don't just go to certain classes of people. Um, go to all peoples in every walk of life, and whoever believes will be saved, right? So that's the general call. But not everyone who hears the general call will be saved. There's a call that the God empowers with the Spirit. So let me give you a, a sort of an illustration or analogy. Suppose the king issues a summons. The king wants you to come into his presence. So he sends a messenger... And he says the king would like your would like you to uh, come into before his presence. Now that's the call, but you can think of it: the call doesn't guarantee your presence because you can hear the call and say, "Forget the king, <laughs> I'm not coming." Um, for for whatever reason, you could resist the call. But suppose the king wants to guarantee that you will listen to the call and come and, and appear before him. So along with the messenger, he sends a guard. <laughs> and the guard uh, grabs you by the arm and he says, let's go. <laughs> so that's what's going on uh, in, in our salvation. It's something called effectual. Effectual means it, it produces what it, it, what it wants to uh, affect. Um, so God issues a call to all people, but to some, to those he has chosen, he brings along a guard and he brings you along with him. That guard is the Holy Spirit. It's not coercive, but we'll talk about that, right? So where do we see that? Um, classic example, Acts 16, let me read it for you. This is where Peter and uh, <clears throat> Timothy and Silas go, to, go and, and they're preaching the gospel uh, in Philippi. Here's Acts 16. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we, were, where, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Listen, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So here's the story. Yes, Whitney. So if God is sincere about, like, all people get saved, why mm -hmm. don't he open a different call? Um, we don't know. The scripture one never those, tells us. Okay, so one of those things we'll have to know later. But by necessity, okay, both by scripture, which I'm going to show it to you, but also by logical necessity, we have to distinguish that there's a general call and there's an effectual call. Because not everyone who hears the gospel believes. Some people believe. The question is, why do they believe? Um, and the answer scripture gives us is because God God guarantees that his call will be heeded and received. And so we'll, we'll look at it. So here it is in Acts, right? So Paul goes, Paul goes to this group of women, right? And they're praying by the riverside. And he issues the call. He tells the people, you know, about the gospel of Jesus. Not everyone believes, but Lydia believes. Why does Lydia believe? It, it says, end of verse 14, because the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. 
So the general call is external and it's visible. The, the effectual call that God gives is internal, it's invisible. And so what is the effectual call? The effectual call is simply the general call plus the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. Um, in other words, there's no difference um, in terms of appearance. There's no difference in terms of external observation between the general call and the effectual call. Right? So suppose I'm preaching the gospel. No one can say, oh, the effectual call is right there. <laughs> or, or that's just the general call. It's, it, it's indistinguishable from external observation, but what's going on is God, through his Holy Spirit, is doing something which we cannot see. And when God does something, that it becomes the effectual call. Um, so many more passages that demonstrate this. Uh, look with me to Matthew 22. Jesus says, For many are called, but few are chosen. So notice Jesus here uses, he says many are called, he's talking about the general call, but he says few are chosen, he's talking then about the effectual call. Look at 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, listen very very, very carefully, our gospel came to you. How, did, how does Paul know that they were chosen? How, how does he know that God has saved them? Because our because our gospel came to you not only in word, not just in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So there is a gospel call that is only the word, which is the general call, which is, it's just the words of the gospel. But the words of the gospel by itself is ineffectual. It's not enough. You need it to be accompanied if there's going to be a conversion, if there's going to be a, a, a salvation. There has to be power. There has to be the spirit. There has to be conviction of the heart. These things I cannot control. <laughs> um, sometimes when I'm preaching um, and I feel like I'm losing the congregation, um, I just speak louder. <laughs> <laughs> I just shake my fist more. I just feel like that will do it. That will put the unction and the oomph into it. Um, maybe that will rile your emotions. <laughs> but but I'm trying to take over the Holy Spirit's job, right? The Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit acts independently from the general call, right? It it always accompanies the general call, but 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 it's something that God sovereignly does, right? Yes, Claire. Oh, is there any differentiation between those who respond to the general call versus the effectual call? Is there anything different about the people in, in this equation, or is it simply the Spirit is there or it's not in the Spirit? That's right. So our natural response to the general call is that it's foolish. Foolishness. You know, uh, the king of the universe is a crucified criminal, <laughs> right? Jesus of Nazareth. That sounds foolish. Ridiculous! I don't believe it. That's our natural response to the general call. But then, because of the effectual call, because the Spirit, then you're 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 moved. You're like, I'm a sinner. God came down. He humbled himself. Right? He became a servant. He became nothing for me. My Savior. 
So there's no difference in the type of person. The only difference is the work of God. All peoples. It's not like um, those who reject the call. It's not like those who reject the call are dumb. And those who accept the call are smart. Or those who reject the call are spiritually dull and callous. And those who accept the call are spiritually sensitive and alive and very in tune. No. It only has to do with the sovereign work of God in the Holy Spirit. Does that answer your question? Yeah. I only have one. <laughs> um, so, uh, yes, let's read. Let's keep going. First Corinthians 1. Paul writes, we preach. What is, what is he talking about? He's talking about the general call, right? We preach Christ crucified. Ah, see? I knew I was think, thinking of something like that. Okay, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, right? So he basically says the general call doesn't make any sense. Nobody naturally believes it. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Listen to verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. He is the wisdom of God. Notice Paul uses that same word called, which Jesus used in Matthew 22 as a general call. Paul here uses it as an effectual call. Um, but he, the same concept is present, which is that Paul preaches to everybody, but those who have been called, there's wisdom, there's power, right? There's, there's conversion. Um, so final verse, Romans 1, uh, Paul writes, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's talking there about the special calling, the effectual calling. So to be a Christian is synonymous with being called. Um, they're one and the same. So you can say, I've been called by God. I've heard the call. Um, this is why I have life in Christ. Any questions before we jump to the implications? Why is the word saints used? Uh, elaborate. Any, is there any context, historical context behind oh, right. that so, word would be chosen? Yeah, so I think that um, the, the, the Greek word there for saints just means holy ones, right? And uh, what, what has happened is that the, the Roman Catholic Church has taken this as a special class of people. Um, these are extraordinarily um, courageous, extraordinarily faithful Christians who are models and examples for all of us to sort of follow. Um, the Roman Catholics will take it even further and say that they are, through their, um, through their life of faith, they're, they're able to add to a treasure. Ignore that. Um, but the way the Bible uses the word saints is it means holy ones. It's a general description for all Christians, Right? So what are we called to? We're called not just to be saved, but we're called to be holy before God. We're called to live lives that please him. So it's just saints, Christians, synonymous. Does that answer? Yes. Good. Um, any other questions before we go on to the implications? So the implications may upset you. So let's pause. Yes. Uh, the parable, the, when he calls... When you first mention the king and he calls out that parable, yeah, that's would that be a good example? 
Oh, you're talking about Jesus' parable of the king who issues a summons to his feast? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. um, In that case, Jesus is talking about how uh, the call is initially to the rich to uh, because you know in, in the in that in that time you always invited dinner guests uh people who were of the same social strata as you because it was it was a patronage society so you sort of like you're networking and then everyone rejects his call so then so then the king says you know go out to the byways and the highways bring in the beggars and the and the blind and and so it's talking about how the if you if you if you look at the pattern of who accepts this effectual call? It's the lowly, it's the poor, it's the weak, it's the downcast, the uh, outcast of society. Yeah, I, I think another way to think of it is this: you cannot come to faith in Christ unless you come as a beggar. Um, either you come because you're truly a beggar, or you realize through some capacity of your life that you are you are bankrupt, that you are weak. You have to experience weakness to come to faith in Christ. No one can come to Jesus strong. You have to come weak. And so you have to be broken. So if anyone who is rich comes to faith in Christ, it's, it's I think, only because they experience some sort of brokenness. I came to faith in Christ when I was in uh, junior high. I think it's not coincidental that junior high was the worst period of my life. <laughs> My sister uh, came to faith in Christ during uh, post-college before she went to grad school. That was the worst period of her life. So I I think sociologically, psychologically, this is what happens. All right. Um, Where are we? Okay, implications. Okay, so let's take a deep breath. Don't be mad. Uh, Number one, uh, what are some of the implications if we think about, if we understand this effectual call, right, as distinct from the general call? Number one, implication number one is this is God's sovereign act, and therefore we are entirely passive. Um, this is what God does to us, um, and therefore we have no role or part in it. We don't do it to ourselves. So think about the example of Jesus' call to Lazarus. Let me just read it to you. Uh, John 11 you remember the story, right? Jesus' good friend, Lazarus, has died. Uh, he's been dead three days. Is it three days? Four days. Um, and Jesus comes, and uh, this is what happens. When he, this is, uh, this is uh, Jesus, right? When he had said these things, Jesus, he, cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man, I love this description, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. That is a beautiful, striking, vivid image of our salvation. That Jesus says, Eileen, come out, awaken, arise. Now, if we are dead, what contribution do we who are dead play and help in our salvation? And the answer is we do nothing. What did, Naz- what did Lazarus do to, 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 to rise from the dead? He was just dead. <laughs> he did nothing, right? And so we are entirely passive. We cannot contribute to the effectual call. We do not effect or cause the effectual call. We don't, 
maneuver the effectual call. It just happens to us, right? That is the implication, which means that, therefore, we are predestined. It has to mean that. Ultimately, who is saved and who is not saved is not up to us. It's up to God. Because effectual call is not to us. It's not up to us. It's up to God. And since the effectual call is what begins these, this order of salvation, this, this, this uh, sequence of uh, salvation, since the very beginning, we're entirely passive and God is, the only, God is the only active agent. Therefore, God is the only one who determines ultimately who is saved. The, the natural, logical conclusion must be that we are predestined. I think um, this is an upsetting doctrine for a lot of people. People feel uncomfortable with it, dislike it. The question I believe that Clara asked, which is that it doesn't seem fair. Or who said that? I forget. Um, Clara's like, I disavow. <laughs> that face tells me I don't remember. Um, it doesn't seem fair. And I guess my response is it isn't fair. Um, but salvation isn't fair. Salvation is grace. Um, I think a better way to put it is that it's not even or it's not equal. But God has no obligation to be equal. Um, it's uh, The example I would give is this, right? Suppose that... Um, uh, Suppose that these group of burglars come into your house and they, they ransack your house, they destroy your house, and they steal your, your possessions. And these burglars are caught and they're thrown in jail and uh, they're going to be prosecuted. And you go down to the, to the jail cell and you say that... Um, you know, let's say there's three criminals, and you say to, to one criminal, you say, all of you deserve uh, to go to jail, but to this one criminal, you say, I'm, I'm, I forgive you, and I'm going to help you, and I'm going to um, liquidate my li- entire life savings. And I'm going to fight for your defense, and I'm going to um, rehabilitate you, and I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to try to help you find a job and, 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 and save you. The other two friends will say, hey, that's not fair. You need to do that to us as well. And I think your response would be, I don't think you understand your situation. I don't have an obligation to help any of you. All of you are criminals. All of you deserve a penalty, um, uh, uh, punishment, uh, imprisonment. And therefore, if I choose to liquidate my life savings, if I choose to dedicate my life to rescue one of you, that's ultimately up to me. I think even that analogy doesn't satisfy a lot of people. It doesn't help a lot of people. But that's because we don't know we're criminals. <laughs> the, 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 if you understand the story, if you say that's not fair, you're one of the criminals. Do you understand? It's not you. It's not on your part to say, hey, hey, I know I just ransacked your house and burglarized your home. Hey. People do that. Though. Yes. Um, so, so it's ultimately it's ultimately up to God um, who is saved and who is not saved. Ergo, predestination. Yes, Tony. Uh, Pastor Martin, we've talked about this before. Yes, we have. And, uh, <laughs> one one additional objection I have is okay. that as a burglar, sure, we may be like whatever punishment we're supposed to get, um, we deserve. 
But then there's this other sense of unfairness that doesn't come from us being punished, but thinking that a fair and just God would, since he's all-powerful, would just save everyone, right? All three versions and not just one, right? Because why, why not, right? Why not save all three people so that all three of them can enjoy grace? Surely God can save all three. Um, surely God can save all of humanity. Um, but he has, he does not. Um, but he doesn't tell us why. So ultimately, it means that God is God and we are not God. And we have to yield to his divinity and we have to accept our own limitations in humanity. And, and ultimately, God is saying, can you trust me without me having to explain it all to you? Because if I explain it all to you, then you're not, you're not trusting me because, because I'm God. You're going to trust me because I gave you reasonable explanations and answers and, and, um, and you agree with the reasoning. But I want you to simply trust me. Well, my husband, Troy, he struggled for years with that. You know, I, I've never had a problem with his sovereignty. But I know he said it was really in Genesis to really understand our depravity. Mm-hmm. And once we understand our depravity, and just people I've known, they really understand. They, they believe they deserve hell. Mm-hmm. And when they believe they deserve hell, then when God saved them, they saw the grace. Yeah, I think that's... And a, I struggle. I struggle with hell still. I'm just... That's beyond. But then Romans 9... <laughs> yes. Like, so I, I think that's a, that's a great uh, perspective approach, which is that Rather than when we're encou- when we encounter the doctrine of effectual call, then our response should be, "Wow, wow! Why did God have mercy on me? Wow, the grace of God, the mercy of God." Rather than, "That's not fair." The 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 instinctual response, "That's not fair," is understandable. It's reasonable, but ultimately, it's not. It's not justifiable if we understand that we are vile criminals that deserve death and punishment. Let me keep going on. Um, when you and so this is a hard doctrine, uh, but when you overcome the hardness of a doc, of this doctrine, there is incredible sweetness inside. And here's the sweetness. Here's the faith building aspect of it. It means that salvation is of the Lord. Um, in my newsletter, in the newsletter, I put in. Uh, this uh, verse, famous verse from Jonah 2.9, where Jonah is in the belly of the uh, fish, the great fish, and he cries out, salvation is of the Lord. And so what he's saying is that it's God who saves us. We're not saving ourselves. And therefore, it's all of God's grace. And therefore, this magnifies the grace of God. Otherwise, if we are responsible in some part to our salvation, then we get some of the credit. So, the question I would then say is, if, if in the general call, right, some reject and some accept, why, why, why do some reject? Why do some accept, right? Is it because you accept it because you're more perceptive? Is it because you're smarter? Is it because you're wiser or spiritually more sensitive? If you understand the doctrine of the effectual call, you say, no, it's because of the Spirit. 
And if you say it's the spirit, it's not me, what does that do to you? It destroys all superiority, all arrogance. Why are you a believer and why is your friend not a believer? It has nothing to do with you or nothing to do with your merits. It has nothing to do with your record. It has everything to do with the grace of God. And that should just smash you. <laughs> that should just destroy you. How can you be arrogant? How can you be prideful? And so I think this, this, this doctrine humbles you to the dust. It fills you with wonder. And it fills you with compassion for your non-believing friend. When you talk to your non-believing friend, and your friend doesn't agree with you, <laughs> if your friend holds opposing viewpoints to you, should you get upset? Should you get mad at them? No, because if you get mad at them, you're assuming that it's, a, it's because they're stupid and you're smart. Right? That's wrong. It's because God had mercy on you, and we don't know the story of your friend. But God has not had mercy on your friend. The Spirit has not attended your friend yet. So you have incredible patience for your friend. You should be incredibly compassionate for your friend, right? Um, if, we don't, if we don't believe in the Spirit's role in the effectual call, if we knock this out, then what you have is acceptance or rejection is, pre- is, is based on something inside, something internal. So the, the rejection of this doctrine leads to, leads to uh, arrogance, it leads to pride, it leads to, um, I think, conclusions that Scripture doesn't warrant. Any points or any comments? Yes, Regina. Um, so, I mean, isn't it from the start already connected to redemption? So, like, from the general call and the effectual call, God already knows where they're from. Right. So even before the beginning of time. So, you know, he says, you know, like, Regina, you're mine. You're my daughter. Um, uh, scripture talks about how uh, uh, you're the apple of his eye. Um, you're his precious daughter. Even before he created you, you were in his mind's eye. You were in his thoughts. And then God created you. You were born. You, 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 you lived your life. And then he says, at age 10 or age 15, you're going to hear the gospel. And along with the gospel, and I know you, Regina, you're going to say it's foolish. <laughs> so along with the gospel, he's going to have the, spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit affect your heart and awaken your heart and and so, I, f- I forget what was your question. I just I started going on this journey. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where I was going. Um, oh, you said predestination, right? You were yeah, predestined beforehand. It seems like the person can reject their stuff, but yeah. then it's already predestined. It is already predestined. But that doesn't take away our sovereign. It doesn't take away from our choice. So it's not. So I told you that the, the king's summons illustration that I gave is not exactly correct. Because the king says, issues a summons, he brings a guard, and he grabs you, and you're like, okay. That's not the way the king of the universe does it. He woos you. He, he, he's a lover of your soul, so he awakens your heart. So the, 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 the classic example I would give is, if you look at the gospel accounts, Jesus heals all the time the blind. It's a p- profound and powerful analogy to our salvation. All of us are blind. It's not that, it's, it's, it, it's, um, we can't see the glory and the beauty of the Lord. And what God simply does is he opens our eyes, our spiritual eyes, and then we see the beauty of Christ. How can you not, therefore, fall on your knees and come to him and be, and be his follower? And so that's what, that's, so there's no compulsion. There's no coercion. There's no eye twisting. 
You know, there's no, oh, eat this wonderful feast, this succulent steak and amazing roasted vegetables, and you know? <laughs> Right, so when we are predestined, it doesn't take away um, the means of our final destiny, right? Um, the drama of our lives still play out. It just means that God, who is the author of our lives, has written our story already. Um, it's sort of like this, right? When people encounter the doctrine of predestination, they say, okay, if I'm predestined, that means I'm predestined to eat breakfast. I don't have to eat breakfast then. I'm just going to lay in bed. It's going to magically appear in my tummy. No. <laughs> if you're predestined to eat breakfast, um, it's going to happen by you going to the kitchen and making yourself breakfast. So it doesn't take away the means of our salvation. I don't know if that makes sense. So it's like our choices, choices are already like determined to choose. Can we say that again? Like our, like, like we can choose to reject. We can choose to reject, or we can choose to accept. Yes. But that's already like determined, like before the history, right? Okay. So, so when we hear the general call, we have a genuine choice. Mm -hmm. Everyone has a genuine choice. Everyone can truly accept and truly reject. The problem is, if if you don't have the spirit, you're always going to reject because you're blind. How can you see? Somebody says the beauty of the Lord. What beauty? I see no beauty. I see darkness. I see, you know, uh, swirls of death and decay. Um, so, right, because another, another metaphor that Jesus gives us is everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So if you're in sin, how can you break free? The, the whole slavery metaphor is that you have a master over you. You don't have, have self-will or self-compulsion. So are we free or are we not free? It's a very complicated answer. We're free and we're also not free. Right, we we no one we're not robots, but we're bound. We're bound to our nature. So what 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 the only way we can accept is if God changes our nature, which is that He awakens our heart, He gives us eyes to see, He gives us ears to hear, and then we freely choose of our own accord what is true and beautiful. Right. So so um, it's kind of like this, right? Have you ever had a discussion with a friend? Actually, I had a discussion with a friend. I will never, never forget this. My, my good friend was leaving his wife. And he, he, he was living with a mistress. And as I was talking to him, his wife, such a dear person, she was willing to forgive him and accept him back. And I said, go back to your wife and children. They love you. They miss you. And he said, no, it, you don't understand how miserable I am there. You don't understand what a loveless marriage I've been having. But now I found somebody who I truly love. I'm so happy. I want to go stay with my mistress. And I just wanted to say to him, you're crazy. You're, you're, you're like, you're eating, you're eating like vomit. You know, like what's wrong with you? It, I couldn't persuade him to see the truth that life and happiness and fulfillment is to keep his promise to his wife, to be part of his family, to be a faithful father. So this is what happens, right? It's, it's, 
it's that it's that we're all blind. We cannot see. Sin seems delicious, uh, wonderful. It's like Chronicles of Narnia, right? Um, Edmund, Turkish delights. They just seem so wonderful. They seem so great. Then you go to the White Witch, and then you're thrown in jail. You're in prison. You can't escape. So that was a very meandering, complicated answer. <laughs> all right. Yes, Claire. All right. So how do Christians who don't accept predestination as part of their theology yeah. get to salvation? So how does it differ from this? You don't need to acknowledge the Spirit to be saved. But nevertheless, the Spirit is working in you. Mm-hmm. Um, what you're doing then is you're, you're, you're not giving God the full credit and the full glory. I mean, so that's the only difference. But you can, you're still saved. You're, so you're not saved because you have right theology. Nobody's saved because they have right theology. You're saved because of God's great mercy by his spirit. But then so, to, a, to somebody who doesn't believe in predestination, I would just say to them, why do you believe and why doesn't your friend not believe? So my question is from the standpoint of this is uh, the PCA and this is a part of our doctrine. I want to know what the other denominations treat very important concepts. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm See, I was trying to with... pretend that there was no dissent. <laughs> this is just scripture. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I, I looked it up, Arminian, because there was Tulip, mm-hmm. Calvin, who went against Arminian. Well, if you look up the support for sovereignty, they'll go from Genesis to Revelation, but you don't have scripture supporting the other view. There's no script. They don't have a stand. You can't find an Arminian stand with scripture scriptures. It's, um, it's a little more complicated than that. But what I would say is this. The dissent, the dissent would say it has to do with what is the greatest evil. The greatest evil is the, is the um, restriction of free will. Free will is the greatest good in the universe is kind of the way they would approach it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, all the doctrines and all the scriptures that seem to suggest that all, the ultimate decision of salvation lies with God and not with, not with human beings, there has to be a way to account for it and explain it and, 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 and um, fit it into a system. Because, but the ultimate greatest good is free will. We, we all have free will because free will is necessary for God not to be um, the cause of evil. So it's those two things. Those two things are the driving uh, motivations for the dissent. We all have free will, and God is not responsible for evil. The Calvinist, as Eileen is talking about, the Calvinist would say the issue of free will is um, is a false dilemma. We all have will. It just depends on what you're talking about in terms of free. In terms of God being the author of evil, that is a mystery. Um, it's a it's a it's it's a mystery that's never answered in Scripture, which is. God is not the author of evil, but God is ultimately sovereign and in control of evil. The, the best example I could give is Job, right? If you look at the story of Job, it's very, very interesting, right? Because um, evil things happen to Job, right? And why does evil things happen to Job? What, what's the story? Who's the cause of the evil in Job? Satan. Satan goes before God and says, can I destroy Job's life? That's a very interesting story because ultimately, who gives the permission? God. So who, so who allowed it to happen? Or who is in control of Job's life being destroyed? God. God. But, the, but the text tells us it was Satan who did it. 
And it's, it's, it's the scripture's way of basically saying, God is not responsible for evil. He is not the author of evil. He's, he doesn't delight or desire evil. Satan desires evil. Satan wanted to kill and destroy Job. God allowed it to happen in Job's life for a greater good, to make Job a great person, to, to create the book of Job, one of the greatest books in all of world literature, right? Um, very complicated. All right. See, if you unravel this thread, it, it, it unspools into all kinds of... So we're going to just keep going. <laughs> Number two, where are we? Oh, my goodness. Okay, five minutes. It gives us a deep assurance. Um, where are we? Uh, yes, let me read to you John 6. Jesus writes, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So, um, if, if the beginning of our salvation is uh, God's sovereign work in the Holy Spirit, therefore the whole process of salvation um, will be by the grace of God, superintended by God, and therefore the Spirit will most assuredly complete His work in us. Therefore, we should feel great assurance, right? Um, finally, la- a third implication, we need to live according to our call. In the call itself, we are entirely passive, but the call does not produce passivity. We need to live in a manner that is true to our call, um, listen to Paul in Ephesians 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we have been called not just to be saved. Aha, I'm saved! Whew. No, we've been called to a life pleasing to Christ. We've been called to humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the, of the Christian community in the spirit and the bond of peace. That's, what, that's, that's our calling, right? So, that, so I, I panicked, and then I just rushed through it, and now I'm done. <laughs> See? <laughs> so I can open it up for questions again. Um, any, any, any questions? Yes, Tony. Automatically is not a word I would use. We naturally, of our own desire, accept. It's like this, Tony. So let me me give you an example, okay? Um, Let's say I put two plates in front of you. One plate is a steaming pile of feces, right? With um, urine and vomit and everything. everything The other plate is the most succulent, the most delicious uh, meal that you've ever laid eyes on. Okay? These are the two choices before you. Which one will you naturally choose? You're hungry, by the way. You will always choose the succulent meal, right? Now, now, what the Bible tells us is that we, we're all bewitched. We all have a spell cast over us, which is sin, which is our, the, the sin of our father, uh, forefather, uh, Adam. So because of this bewitching, the 
pile of feces looks like life. It looks succulent, it looks delicious. So we go towards that, not knowing that we're, we're, we're devouring ourselves, we're, we're leading to death, which is sin, rebellion, right? Um, so what God simply does is he breaks the spell. He, he, he opens our eyes, he frees us, and when we freeze us, we're like, ah! which is Christ, right? So does that answer your question? We have a will. We get to decide. No one is coercing us. We're not robots. But our decisions always come out of our perception, and it always comes out of our, na- of our natural will. And our will, is, our will is bound to evil and sin and death because we're under Adam. And then Christ, I mean, the, and then the, the Holy Spirit awakens us, revives us, frees us. Now we can see. So it seems that 100% of the people who hear the effectual call will accept. Yes. Okay. You don't see that language 100%, but yes, in scripture. <laughs> no one, no, right. So if you've been awakened, would you, would you go to sin and death and Satan? You would never. It's, it's death. It's feces. You know, that diagram, it's almost like I don't want you to put reject and accept on the general call because... You cannot have a except on the general call without the spirit. Do you see what I'm saying? So, but but it, but it is a choice, right? So God is not saying general call, general call, general call. I haven't chosen you, so aha, you must reject. He says it's so a genuine offer. Like there are people who accept on the general call, but then with no spirit. No. Wait, say that again. It's almost like he raised a diagram that has reject except because. In order to accept Christ, yes. you have to have the general call plus the spirit. Yes. Uh, do you see what I'm saying? The diagram. The ta- diagram. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. See, no, no. I, I wrote the diagram. Just, just. No, no, but you understand. Right? <laughs> to me, I go, nobody can accept the general call. That's true. Without the spirit. Yes. We, we established that. Yes, we've established that. Okay. I, I just feel like... <laughs> erased it. Erased, <laughs> erased it. Because we have accepted, you know, that you have to have a spirit. I understand. Okay. But there's also free will, which you already... I'm uncomfortable with the word free will. I would say we have wills. Well, because it, the scriptures that you know open the hearts for us to see. Yeah. But then we still have to. Yeah. Then that's why the, the six steps. Yeah. You know. I, I would say only Christians are truly free. Because because in order to be free, you have to see. Right. Only Christians can truly see. I want to real quick the nature because when we were talking about the feces and the plate, like a dog's nature, mm-hmm. his nature will follow any feces rather than a, a nice green salad. Who would keep such a beast in their house? And I know. So that's why you don't have pets. But you know what I'm saying? Our nature will fo- That was a great example because our nature will follow. A dog would rather eat his own feces than eat a salad, right? But our nature. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. It does make sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm just flabbergasted that the dogs would eat their own feces. Oh, yeah, they do in their body. It's disgusting. Foul, foul. Oh, you didn't know that? <laughs> Elizabeth, um, yours will be the last question. Okay, it's actually more of a statement. Sorry. Okay, okay, yours will be the last statement and then the question. Okay. Um, so one thing, uh, going back to Tony's question, like as far as why, uh, why would a just God sin? You know, why would why not save all? Um, one passage that is really helpful in answering that is re- the entirety of Romans nine. Um, one thing. And you said that he doesn't give us an answer as to why. But in Romans 9, he kind of clues us in. Yeah, there are hints. Yeah, it's, it's like it says, um, what if God desiring to show his wrath yeah. 
and to make known his power yeah. as endured with limitations. So, so it so that answer assumes that the greatest uh, goal of the universe is for people to be happy, but that's not the greatest goal of the universe is for God to be glorified and honored. And uh, God and is. I think it makes clear that God is glorified and honored even God. in those who perish in hell because they honor and glorify His justice. And the, yeah, exactly. I didn't go so, there though, because that this, there's so many ways. So yeah. But nine, it does say that. I mean, he in Romans, just read Romans nine. It's really good because he talks about. Last question. Yeah, quick question. So how do we know we are like within grace? Mm-hmm. So like it's so um so it gives like it ushers and then we can know that like we are called. That's mm-hmm. it. And then I have another question. Um, Partially, if you ask that question, you've been called. Uh, uh, if, if like everyone, everyone who says, "Oh, I'm worried that I've been predestined," if you're worried, you've probably been predestined, right? Because because why should you worry, right? Oh, I'm worried that my father does he love me? Am I his child? Well, if you call him father, you're his child. Somebody who is in rebellion against God says, "Predestined? Not predestined? I don't care." And it's a foul doctrine to me anyway, and I hate him. I'm running. Get me away from this monster. Yeah, so another question is, like, you said, like, the faith is, like, our ro- in faith, mm-hmm. our role is acting? Yes. So we'll get to that. Oh, three weeks. Later. No, not three weeks, in two weeks. Okay. I'll teach that class. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you so much for our salvation. And we... Realize, we understand now that the author of our salvation is you. Salvation is from the Lord. We pray that we would give you glory. We would, we would be... How can we even walk? We should be staggering every day of our lives, every moment. We should just be amazed that you should love us like this. We pray that you would receive all the glory. Thank you for um, encouraging us through the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Right. Thank you, everybody.